Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre every single week. <laughs> and this week, Caroline, uh, you expressed a specific interest to introduce a story with zero murders in it. Yeah, yeah, I did. After the last few weeks of disgusting, brutal, and disgustingly brutal stories, I promised last episode to cover something, well, kind of stupid this week. Maybe a bit silly. As if uh, last week's expose of human sacrifice wasn't uh, the least bit silly? (sighs) I mean, people were dying, Sean. But, dear listeners, today we'll be exploring the story of Jeff. That's G-E-F, the talking mongoose. That's my biggest question, and I hope you have an answer for the spelling of Jeff here, because I've been looking at it on the episode schedule, and it's been driving me insane. Oh, I have an answer. I have many answers for you, but even more questions, I would say. (laughs) Oh, great. Let's get into it. Well, if you've never heard of Jeff, and listeners, I really hope you haven't so we can be the ones to introduce this absurd story to you, here's kind of the Cliffs Notes. Back in the 1930s, the Irving family was living in a farmhouse at Cation's Gap near the hamlet of Dalby on the Isle of Man, which is a self-governing British crown dependency in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland. In the fall of 1931, so the Irvings said, a being who called himself Jeff, a mongoose, began to uh, kind of haunt them, making noises in their walls and communicating with the family directly. Was he a mongoose or was he a ghost? We're going to get to that too. Eventually, this wild story made its way into contemporary tabloids, and those interested in the paranormal have been fascinated with its particular weirdness ever since. Was Jeff really a talking mongoose? Some kind of cryptid? A poltergeist or ghost inhabiting the walls of the Irving farmhouse? Sean, there are many theories, and you've already brought up a couple of them. Uh, Are there young girls in the house? Oh, there sure is. It's a poltergeist. Continue. (laughs) We'll be tackling the theories today after we first fully explore the story of Jeff and his time with the Irvings. For our main source today... I'll be using the book, Jeff, exclamation point, The Strange Tale of an Extra Special Talking Mongoose. Now that's being adapted into a musical this fall, right? Yes, absolutely. This book is by Christopher Joseph, published in 2017. And this truly is an exhaustive treatment of the story and probably the most definitive available. Joseph was given access to the University of London's Senate House Library Archive on all Jeff-related documents. Uh, And it's both hilarious that that archive actually exists and pretty special because I'm unsure if anyone else has gotten that privilege. What, to see the Jeff archive? Yeah. But Joseph was able to refer to original letters, diaries, court transcripts, and even fur samples in the compilation of this book. So I'm pretty confident in at least the facts that he'll be providing us. As Joseph writes in the end of his introduction to the book, quote, As you will discover, the case of the talking mongoose is tangled, often humorous, and always very strange. Over the years, my understanding of the Irving family's experiences almost a century ago has taken many twists and turns, shifting in shape and form almost as many times as Jeff himself. 
So I present oh. here the facts of the case and leave you to draw your conclusions as to who or what that clever little mongoose really was. So he's also a shape changer? In a way, yeah. Are we sure this isn't like Odin or Zeus <laughs> trying to get a date? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about all the possibilities, or at least many of them. That's how Zeus got the ladies. <laughs> turned into a swan. Yeah, or a cow, or I don't know why that would be better than a guy, but we'll leave that to the ladies. He was self-conscious about the white hair. Uh, continue. <laughs> so near the end of 1931, rumors of something called the Dalby Spook began to circulate around the Isle of Man, which was an understandably small community. It was, you know, a little island. And this was beginning with close neighbors and then spreading to nearby villages and eventually to the city of Peel. The strange events were said to be taking place at Darlish Kashin, a farm east of the small village of Dalby owned by the Irvings. The Irving family consisted of Father James, 58, Mother Margaret, 54, and their 13-year-old daughter, Vori. Uh, and this name is kind of a Gaelic variant of Mary. I might be saying it wrong. There seem to be conflicting pronunciations on Google, but I'm going with Vori. Um, and lest the listener think I'm interested in young girls in the house for any other reason <laughs> than this, um, poltergeist cases almost... 100% of the time have a teen or a young girl in the house. Yes. If you've listened previously to our Bridgeport Poltergeist episodes or our Enfield Poltergeist episodes, it's all a young teenage girl heavily involved. And this one's no different. Often one who's a good ventriloquist. <laughs> yes. Well... It was said that the Irvings were claiming that, beginning that September, they had begun to be visited by a small weasel or rat-like creature that apparently was able to talk. Furthermore, writes Joseph, it appeared to be possessed of intelligence, being able to converse, debate, argue, sing, and tell jokes. All right, well, the first three of those are the same yes. thing. Uh, initially, the Irvings had considered it a hostile and malevolent presence, frightened by what they saw as its threats and satanic laughter. But by a few months later, it seemed that the weasel thing had chilled out and sort of became a member of the family. Is that when they started calling it a mongoose? <laughs> Is that like, oh, it's not a weasel after all? Well, yes, and we'll get there. But apparently Jeff had some specific requests as to how he would be referred to. Don't misgender Jeff. No. They said this creature uh, lived in the house, talking to them and singing to them many nights. It would run errands, hunt rats in the farm buildings, warn if it sensed poachers nearby. Do we have any examples of errands it would run? Uh, he, he would go all around. Jeff, we're almost out of milk. I mean, he would kill rabbits for the Irving family to eat. They were pretty poor, and he would leave the carcasses on their doorstep as kind of a gesture of goodwill. Sometimes, and this is my favorite, uh, the Irving said the creature would leave the farmland and venture around the neighborhood, always returning back to the family with hot gossip and comedic commentary on the Dalby tea. So he would kind of eavesdrop on on the, li the locals the neighbors and then bring back all the gossip to the fam put on his big rupaul glasses and yes. just read uh, read the neighborhood the library was always open with jeff and this creature loved to learn as well and really enjoyed languages and singing especially the isle of man's 
national anthem. And um, the ethnic group of the Isle of Man is called Manx, M-A-N-X. So we'll be saying that as well. Now, the Irvings described this creature when they saw it as resembling a weasel, but with dexterous forepaws, almost resembling a human's hands. So right now, size-wise, visually, this thing is kind of reminding me of our dog Poe, to be honest. Well, you just because you say he's a human being doesn't mean <laughs> well, he's he got, has human hands. Well, the creature would use its paw hands to light matches and eat its favorite foods with a spoon, which the family would set out for it. And Poe often holds things in his little paw hands. Yeah, but he can't use a spoon. We've never given him one. Maybe he can. <laughs> uh, this creature was literate and had powerful earring and uh, hearing and eyesight and apparently also possessed strength far outstripping what would be expected from its size. I mean, what was the literacy rate for people on the Isle of Man in the 30s? Apparently, if shown writing or whatever, sometimes it would read it. According to Nandor Fodor, who wrote My Diary in the House of the Talking Mongoose in 1937. That's the vampire from... uh, uh, (laughs) What We Do in the Shadows. From What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, He is Nandor, yes. Um, Nandor wrote that it had initially identified itself as a ghost in the form of a weasel. Um, And it was first called Jack by the family. They just kind of gave him this name. Uh, However, at some time in 1932, the Irvings began to call the entity Jeff with a G, as that's what it seemed to prefer. And we'll get into why that is. Do we know how they knew what it preferred? Yes, we'll we'll get there. Um, But this newly minted Jeff also explained that it was not a weasel, but an Indian mongoose born in India on June 7th, 1852. Kill cobras, I do, don't I? (laughs) And he originally lived in Delhi. As word began to spread of the Irving family's strange, I don't know, experiences, I guess, um, the small amount of media on the Isle of Man, of course, became very interested. One of the first major reports about Jeff came in the Isle of Man Examiner on February 19th, 1932. The article's intro went as follows. Dalby Sensation. Listen to this story of the occult. Do a description of incidents which beggar description. Details as far as we are able to present them of events which have no equal in fact or fiction, and yet which are solemnly vouched for by people whose sanity brooks no question. This is all headline? No, Dalby Sensation was the headline. It is the story of what has been elsewhere described as the spook of Dalby, a spook which is not a spook, nor, if we accept the word of responsible persons, Is it the invention of an unbalanced mental state? So obviously, the examiner had a minimum word count requirement. Um, (laughs) That's just the classic 30s. (laughs) Yes. But we also see here the first impressions of the tale. There's kind of wonder, disbelief, but deep interest as well. And going from that newspaper account, zero facts to speak (laughs) of whatsoever. Just general disbelief and people running around. Well, in the area, Jeff was then most prevalently known as the Dalby Spook, or Dalby, again, this is like kind of Irish-British pronunciations a lot of the time. I might not get stuff right. Um, and, and he is still often called the Dalby Spook in the area, but the journalistic invention of the full name, the Talking Mongoose, has been what's st- stuck most uh, in the greater paranormal community. 
It also helps that there's no like weird racial undertones when calling Jeff a talking mongoose rather than a Dalby spook. Um, unfortunately, the latter word used to be used in racial yeah. negative racial contexts, but they're not using it anyway in that in that way in this. Yes, it's a yeah, like, like it's a ghost. Yes. For those on the Isle of Man, it speaks to their continuing belief that this was a supernatural event, placing Jeff within the context of their mythology, like fairies and goblins. The usage of spook really is resembling spooky here, and it's also meant to denote this because the name comes from the German spook, S-P-U-K, meaning a kind of fairy entity. S-P-U-K? Spook. I love German. Spook. Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream is also a version of this, which um, gives his name originating in the Middle Eng- English pook, meaning elf or sprite. Oh, like a puka is what Harvey is in the movie Harvey with oh, sure. you know, the Invisible Rabbit. They mm-hmm. say he's a spirit called a puka. Right. So Shakespeare's Puck and the Irving's Jeff and even Harvey, the Invisible Rabbit, I guess are kind of distant relatives in weirdness. But it's clear by the preference of the name Dalby Spook, both then and now, um, the people of the area were really placing Jeff firmly in the mixed kind of Celtic Norse folklore, um, with those perhaps more likely to believe in him as they did other traditional lore of the area, which was still very prevalent at the time. The article in The Examiner went on to interview James Irving himself, who was presented as an intelligent, respectable, and trustworthy witness. James had apparently been reluctant to participate in the article, as some more local, small paper accounts of the story had portrayed the family in a ridiculous light, according to him, and he did not want to encourage people to crowd the farm uh, to attempt to get a, a glimpse of the chatty specter. But he did want to give the Irving side of the story, and so he recounted the tale for a reporter, beginning on September 13th, when the family began to hear tappings and knockings in the house. After a few days, the noises increased into animal sounds like the barking of a dog and the blowing of a stoat or ferret. I don't know what... Blowing? I guess it's a sound they make. I don't know. Or a, you know, an act. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, James attempted to trap this noisy animal, but was unsuccessful. Then, on October 20th, James and Avari glimpsed the creature for the first time. Quote, they describe it as possessing a small rat-like body with a long, bushy tail, body and tail benign of a yellowish hue, and tail speckled with brown. They would also say that the tail... Um, had kind of a, a bushy black tip on the end, like Poe. Poe has a, a black tip okay, of his tail. Yes, he's very similar to <laughs> Peanut. <laughs> uh, in December, the family started to hear noises like a baby attempting to talk. And soon after, they began to hear actual words coming from behind the walls of their home. Now, later, there's a slightly different account of these early days offered by the Irvings, with daughter Vari being the one to teach it English. But at first, everything was really presented through James's eyes as the unquestioned head of the family. James stated that the creature hadn't attempted to kill any of the chickens, which was strange if it really were a weasel, weasel or a stoat, which would immediately kill chickens. 
Um, he also stated that they had no motive to invent such a weird yarn without any financial gain to be had and only negative implications of sharing the story, like Looky Lose, who had already begun to visit the farm, with some even damaging the property in their excitement. Yeah, nobody has a real good reason to invent these weird stories. Um, <laughs> and yet, weird stories. Well, unless they're true, Sean. James also initially felt that this wasn't a supernatural phenomena, but rather the creature was a hybrid animal with human mind and vocal powers. Okay, that's not supernatural? <laughs> I mean, I think he's saying in comparison to like a ghost. Yeah, I think a ghost is more normal than, like, I would believe a ghost sooner. Well, not James. He had 15 people ready to attest to their experience with the creature. Three fishermen even signed a statement after visiting the farm and experiencing strange things. Irving made the same sort of statement to the Manchester Daily Dispatch the next month. Now, a little backstory on the Irving family. The Irvings had moved to Darlish Cashin from the Liverpool area in 1916 after a cargo tax on luxury items during World War I pretty much collapsed James's thriving business as an agent for Dominion Organ and Piano. So he was very successful at selling these items, but then they became a luxury during the war and no one wanted to buy them. James believed that the farmhouse was no older than about 130 years old when he purchased it, and he basically used some of his meager savings. Um, he had never farmed before. It was just kind of a last-ditch thing because he had no prospects. Are you going to tell me it was built on like a ancient burial ground of some kind, of a druid circle? Well, it may have been built way back around 1350, or at least the first structure on the land. It's a little unclear. The land itself was home to fairly ancient peoples, as suggested by the discovery of a grave site, ding, 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 <laughs> dating to the Bronze Age, only about 500 yards northwest. And there was also a Norse burial mound discovered on a nearby farm around 1850. So there's probably like Vikingish, early Celtic people living on this land way back. Definitely cool, definitely creepy. Mm -hmm. um, just a public service announcement. People have died everywhere. It's true. People definitely are, are uh, were buried under, under our home. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. The Irvings had two older children with them at the time, son Gilbert and daughter Elsie, and both moved away by the 1930s, got married, went back to the mainland. Vari would be born in March 1918. In January 1932, after the Jeff story has already started, it crossed over to England, and a reporter from the Daily Dispatch was sent to the Isle of Man to investigate the wild tale. The article was published under the headline, Man Weasel Mystery Grips Island, Queerest Best, oh, Queerest Beast, Talks to Daily Dispatch <laughs> Reporter, Gives a Tip for the National. So, the reporter began, quote, The mysterious man weasel of Dolish Cashin has spoken to me today. And uh, after that, it got even weirder. I like the mysterious man weasel of Dolish Cashin better than the... <laughs> well, it's a bit of a mouthful. Better than the mannish spook or whatever they call it. The Dolby spook, yes. But I mean, the talking mongoose, Jeff the talking mongoose, you're never going to get better than that. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> after a short interview, James, uh, you know, the father, asked Jeff to speak and got no response. The reporter then... Is, is there a mongoose in the yard? Like, uh, try to... No, it's not even native to that area. Right, but 
when they're trying to get it to speak? Are they just talking to the walls? Often, yes. Or like just, you know, like omnipotently, like Jeff, you know, just kind of calling out. So what makes them They do see it sometimes, but oftentimes they say it's in the walls or in the roof or whatever. Okay, so this family has a weird weasel in their yard. A friendly one. Maybe maybe a weird cat. I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see, Sean, and then how they, friendly it is. But then they hear disembodied voices, weasel not around, and they just think... Well, not in view, but the weasel might be in the walls at that point. You Sure, granted. <laughs> um, so the reporter decides to leave because he's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm out. Well, this guy's been yelling <laughs> at the walls for five <laughs> yes. minutes now. But just after exiting the home, James called him back in saying, it started. James and the reporter snuck to the open door where they heard a sound described as a peculiar peculiar voice pitched more than an octave above the highest human voice, like the sound of a weasel's scream. Margaret Irving, not realizing the reporter had returned, told Jeff, the gentleman has gone now. However, an eerie shriek responded, he has not. He has not. <laughs> he has, replied Margaret. He has not. <laughs> but then the voice said, I can hear him whispering. And then, I won't talk for these people. They are all liars. James confessed to the reporter that he was anxious the story was ruining his chances of selling the farm. And uh, that the idea that 13-year-old Vari was a ventriloquist voicing Jeff herself was ridiculous. And apparently that was something that had been brought up by some articles. Yeah, of course it was. (laughs) Now, this possibility was examined in the dispatch a day after the initial article under the headline, Clue to Mystery of Talking Weasel, Schoolgirl May Have Powers of Ventriloquism. Powers of Ventriloquism. (laughs) Yeah. It ruminated on the possibility that Vari was simply a very talented ventriloquist, but also took pains to insist that James Irving was an honest man who truly believed in what was happening. But we also, uh, same thing, right, in the Enfield poltergeist and also with... Uh, little Marcia in the Bridgeport poltergeist. Mm-hmm. In the article, the reporter wrote, quote, The conversation was between the weasel voice and Mrs. Irving, who was unseen to me in another room, while the little girl sat motionless in a chair at the table. I could see her reflection, though not very clearly, in a mirror on the other side of the room. She had her fingers to her lips. I kept my eyes on the face in the glass. The lips did not move, so far as I can see, but they were partly hidden by her fingers. When I edged my way into the room, the voice ceased. The little girl continued to sit motionless without taking any notice of us. She was sucking on a piece of string, I now saw. The reporter ended with his own hypothesis. My theory is that she has, quite without malice, persuaded herself to the personality of Jack the Weasel. Her quick ear, attuned to the soft sounds of animals in the hills where she plays, is able to catch the foreign sentences her father repeats. She plays the part herself without knowing what she is doing. That, it seems to me, is the only possible theory. She is unconsciously playing a clever, ventriloquial, practical joke. I do not think the father and mother have anything to do with the occurrences apart from unconsciously encouraging them. Boy, I love the bravery to invent a word. Ventriloquial. It's you know what it prank. didn't it didn't come up as spelled wrong. So maybe that is a real word. Fascinating. <laughs> Other reports would remer- emerge in the press with the Irvings being quoted as saying that Jeff had called himself a ghost in the form of a weasel. 
accompanying the fact that weasels are not native to the Isle of Man. And the stoat, which is, doesn't comply with the Irving's description of Jeff. Then, in late February 1932, a letter to the Isle of Man Weekly Times may have cracked it. To the editor, after reading your description of the animal called the Dolby Spook, it seems to be very... It seems to me very like a mongoose. These animals emit strange noises, but I never heard of one being taught to speak. <laughs> About 20 years ago, the then owner of this the... This is the 30s equivalent of a coast-to-coast calling. Yes. About 20 years ago, the then owner of Erie Gushlin, a mountain farm in the Dalby District, liberated a number of these animals to kill the rats, and it is possible that the spook is a descendant of these. Also in early 1932, James would later tell Nander Fodor that Jeff chose his name and changed it from Jack, which the Irvings had bestowed on him. Apparently, stoat on him. <laughs> yes. Apparently, one day James encountered two boys in his fields hunting rabbits with a ferret. Thinking that the boys might do some damage and it may be good to know their names, Mr. Irving stopped them and asked them about it. One of them said his name was Lowy. Uh, Mr. Irving then asked him, are you a relation of Jeff Lowy, J-E-F-F, who used to work at my farm? He was my father, the boy answered. Arriving home, Mr. Irving told his wife about the meeting. Jeff, at the time, was called Jack. He apparently listened to the conversation for a little while, and then he called out, I don't like the name Jack. Call me Jeff. Uh. And apparently the creature was only able to spell phonetically, so they spelled J-E-F-F as G-E-F. G is more often a hard letter, if anything. Why would it be G-E-F? I don't know. What's more phonetic than J-E-F-F? I don't know. Jeff! (laughs) He's not that literate. That's all I'm saying. Initially, as mentioned, the Irvings were afraid of the entity, which tended to mock them in the early months. Quote, if I sat up in bed in the dark, Jeff shouted, Lie down, you devil! I had to go out in the open into the lavatory outside the house, for Jeff was shouting out loudly what I was doing. He said he was going to tell everybody. I was afraid in those days that he may throw a knife at me. Remember when uh, uh, Marcia's cat in the Lindley Street Poltergeist would go like, Get out of here, you sailor, you mm-hmm. dirty Greek. Mm-hmm. And disliked Greeks for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff himself would be prone to swearing. Small stones would often pelt James in the back of the head, neck, ears, shoulders, whatever, all accompanied by Jeff's taunts and laughter. James once attempted it to uh, scare the creature away with his gun, but it vanished before he could shoot at it. Young Vari became the focus of Jeff's attention, so much so that James and Margaret eventually moved her bed into their bedroom in an attempt to protect her better. Okay, this is this whole plan is backfiring on Vari here. Well, once completed, the move apparently enraged Jeff enough to scream, I'll follow her wherever you move her. Sometime in the spring of 1932, the family and their hostile visitor eventually were able to agree to some kind of truce. Living with Jeff became the norm. He was quite chatty, loved to sing, and especially loved to eat. He adored bacon without the fat, oranges, sweets, biscuits, and all sorts of comfort food. Okay, when they're feeding Jeff, are we leaving cookies out for Santa Claus? or I think are it's we... a combination. I think sometimes they see him and sometimes they leave it out and then it's gone. Sure. Because they all said they saw him, like, many times. But he's not always around, visually. 
Um, he would even overindulge at times. In April, James was awakened at 5 a.m. by Jeff calling out, Jim, Jim, I am sick. Uh, and he started making noises that sounded like the vomiting of a cat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff told James that he had been sick under his bed, which was true. There was apparently some puke under there, which contained carrots. Jeff confessed that he had gotten into a cottage some eight miles away and eaten all the food in the home, including carrots. Sometimes Jeff would even get sick uh, in other ways, including a recurring cough that spurred him to tell James, Jim, I have a goddamn cough. I have a hell of a cold. You will have to get me something. After the did, break... Wait, did Jim get him cough medicine? No, he was like, bro, what? I don't even know what to get you. But after the break, we'll visit the Irvings with a variety of paranormal investigators and get the professional opinion on whether Jeff was a supernatural phenomenon or just one big hoax. This little girl's taking her family for a ride. I'm sick. I'm sick. Support for Ain't It Scary is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And the Performance Package 4.0 has arrived. We got one of these in the mail uh, just the other day, Caroline. And, oh man, is it a game-changer. Uh, inside this package, you will find, first of all, inside the lid, it says, Your balls will thank you, which I appreciate. Uh, and then you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, weed whacker, ear and nose hair trimmer, crop preserver ball deodorant, crop reviver ball toner, performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. And I mean all that stuff I just said, not your testicles, which are <laughs> also referred to as goodies a lot in the Manscaped. Uh, literature. Mm -hmm. First off, the Lawnmower 4.0. This trimmer is the future of grooming and, dare I say, the greatest ball trimmer ever. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 4000K LED spotlight for when you need a more precise shave. It really is just a. Um, you know, they're, re they're ready to go on stage. They're ready for Hollywood, these guys. They got a spotlight right on them. Hey, boys. Like they have their own vaudeville act. Absolutely. I'm the left. He's the right. Nice. It's time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping with code SCARYSQUAD. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SCARYSQUAD. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Welcome back. Uh, when last we left you, we had just finished hearing about some of the initial antics of our new best friend, <laughs> Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Um, Carrie, what do you think? Is this guy a spirit? Is he a uh, literal Indian mongoose? I mean, he he said he was a ghost, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's... <sighs> Let's see Jeff through the eyes of paranormal investigators who are visiting the house. You 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 said the word cryptid at one point. I'd love to hear that pitch because <laughs> to me there, there's there's no weasel here. <laughs> well, in the spring of 1932, Harry Price, who is a famous British psychic investigator and member of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, 
was asked to investigate the Irvings case by a friend of James's. So ahead of him, Price sent Captain Harold Edgerton Dennis, another member of the laboratory's council and a well-respected businessman, described as being very shrewd and not easily hoodwinked. So Dennis was going to be like his initial boots on the ground in this situation because Harry Price was a, a famous and busy man. You know, he wanted to check it out before he went over. Sure. On his first visit, Dennis saw the Irvings' physical proof of the phenomena, like cracks and holes made in the room's woodwork by the creature to spy on the family. Show me a mongoose. Well, okay, yes. Nothing had happened by around midnight that night, so Dennis took his leave. And as soon as the door shut, a shrill voice from inside the house screamed out, Go away! Who is that man? So at that, he eventually re-entered the house, and at which point... Really counterintuitive, Jeff. uh, The voice abruptly stopped. Nothing else happened that night, so Dennis left for his hotel. The next morning, James Irving informed him that Jeff had been talking that morning and had promised to speak to me in the evening, provided I made a promise to give Vari a camera or gramophone. As, Wait a second. As Joseph wrote in his book, quote, perhaps this is a, sp- a suspicious detail, hinting that the identities of Vari and Jeff were closely linked. <clears throat> closely, closely linked. <laughs> Dennis wrote, quote, I was also informed that I had to sit in a recess in the room as the animal said it had been looking at me the previous night and did not like me. Again, it, it also said that it knew I did not believe in it, so I would shout out in the early evening that I did believe in it, etc., etc. Jeff apparently had a peeve about people not believing in him and would not appear or talk to any doubting Thomases, as Irving stated. Yeah, and I won't come unless Voldy can see all the R-rated movies she wants and has no bedtime. <laughs> At 5.30 p.m., Dennis was taking tea with James and Vari when something was thrown from the panel behind James, striking the teapot on the table. Upon examination, they found a large packing case needle, which made the same noise they'd previously heard when thrown lightly against the teapot, so they knew that was what had been thrown. James told Dennis that this was Jeff, who constantly threw things at the family. Around an hour later, plates and other items were heard being moved around in the scullery, and again, no animals were found. An hour after that, Margaret returned from town and was surprised to hear that Jeff still hadn't spoken, considering the promise him and James had made to each other that morning. You just can't trust a mongoose anymore. No. James asked Margaret, go upstairs and see if you can make the creature begin. And he told Dennis, if we can get him to start upstairs, he'll come down into this room. Terribly embarrassed, old boy. Terribly embarrassed. (laughs) The couple went to the bedroom, and a few minutes later, there was a shrill scream. (coughs) Like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like that. (laughs) Margaret said, now come on and talk. And a shrill voice continued to speak in the bedroom for 15 minutes. Dennis shouted that he believed in the animal, so would it come downstairs? The voice shrilly replied, no, I don't mean to stay long, as I don't like you. Um, where was the daughter during all this? Um, I believe she was still downstairs with Dennis. It was a little unclear. We, we know her, her movements more in other stories. Now, the voice did keep talking, but never came downstairs, um, which didn't really prove anything to Dennis because James and Margaret were out of sight. They could have easily been doing this. Uh, 
Dennis would visit Darlish Cashin twice more after this, the first return being in May 1935. First, he met with James for lunch at the Waterfall Inn, where James ordered a glass of Manx beer. And they chatted, they walked down to the water, you know. Uh, When they arrived at the farmhouse, Margaret met them immediately, saying, Jeff has been with you. He saw Potts, which was apparently another nickname that Jeff had for James, have beer for lunch. And he told me of your conversation on the shore about my lack of shoes. And he saw you pick a daisy from a bank near the sea. And this was all true. And it impressed Dennis because Margaret had had no opportunity to collude with James before they arrived home. And Dennis also noted that he didn't think Vari could have been sneaking around and spying on them the whole time because he hadn't seen anywhere where she could have concealed herself, especially when they were out in the open near the water. That is is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, Jeff spoke from behind the wall, just feet from Dennis, and Dennis noted that the Irvings were close by and in full view, and he didn't see them speaking, and that Vari was at that moment a good distance from the house at the entrance of the stackyard. So she's outside the house, and he hears the voice. The last visit on uh, in October 1935 was... What, what did it say? Uh, that I don't know. The last visit in October 1935 was possibly the most eventful. Uh, At the beginning, at 11.30 p.m., the Irving parents and Dennis heard rapping sounds in the kitchen. To this, James... It was December 24th with (laughs) Hallis out after dark. To this, James entreated, Come on, Jeff, if you won't talk, make a noise. Rapping sounds responded, moving from different points in the house quite rapidly. When I seen a man chilling with his dog in the park. (laughs) His weasel in the park. Upstairs, a bedroom door was banged with extraordinary violence, and Dennis suggested they check it out. At that moment, a shrill, excited, high-pitched voice screamed, Go and look! Go and look! So they did, and they found that the fastener on the outside of Ari's bedroom door was turned down. Now, she was sleeping at this point. It was late. Um, So this latch was latched on the outside, so she would not be able to exit the room. Now, there are conflicting statements as to whether Vari had sleepwalking disorder, but apparently... So some people say she did? Yes, but uh, the parents say that they locked her in the room at night so she wouldn't like sleepwalk out, which is why the latch was done up. They also said that she was like the first to wake up in the morning and and come down and cook. So it's like, well, how did she get out? Because there was no latch on the inside of the door, just the outside. Some people also thought that the idea that there was a latch on the outside of the door spoke to some sort of child abuse. There was other things that, you know, people thought might have been child abuse in this situation. But there were other doors in the house that had similar latches. So it wasn't like they installed it for her or something. So after uh, they find the door still locked from the outside, they check in on Vari. And she's awake. She said that Jeff was between the roof and the ceiling overhead at the time. Dennis refastened the door latch and returned to the kitchen. The voice began to scream and knocking, banging noises emerged from all over the house in quick succession, as if the perpetrator moved with lightning speed. So he thought, he seemed to think it was faster than anyone could move around the house. These bangs appeared to come from the roof, the parents' bedroom, over the kitchen, and the staircase. This continued for about 15 minutes, culminating with crashing noises from upstairs. So they went back up to Vari's room, still latched from the outside, found her in bed. 
a heavy ch- a heavy chair had been thrown across the bed and it was like resting on the bed and the chest of drawers. Vari told Dennis calmly, oh, it's only some more of Jeff's tricks. So they lock her in. They go back downstairs. There's, they lock her back in? Yeah. Well, I mean, if she's sleepwalking, um, they go back downstairs. There's more banging and screeching. And eventually, Jeff's voice called out, hello, everybody, uh, from a, a, the area of like the kitchen entrance. He's about to start his floor <laughs> show. Ba-da-da-da. It's Jeff. Uh, Dennis was unable to find a source for the voice, even when he went around with a flashlight. Eventually, zonked out from the evening's events, Dennis told Jeff to basically hit the road, so to speak, around 3 a.m. Jeff replied to this, I mean to throw a brick at you tonight when you are asleep. Uh, And Dennis was able to sleep until 7 a.m. when a shrill voice from near the roof shouted, Get up, Dennis! I'm throwing a brick at you! (laughs) Captain Harold Dennis left the home that time a true believer in the reality of Jeff. But no head injury. No. So that's a win. There were some pebbles apparently thrown at the window. Take that as you will. Now, between the second and third visits of Captain Dennis, investigator Harry Price himself decided to visit the farm. Jeff, upon hearing this news, was reported to have stated, I like Captain Dennis, but not Harry Price. He's the man who puts the kibosh on the spirits. Oh, no. So he talked like kind of a vaudevillian. His <laughs> reputation precedes him. Yes. What is the 30s? He, no, well, apparently he had, he knew who Harry Price was. He said some stuff about having been present at a certain seance that Price had been at. Uh-huh. I didn't want to get into the whole thing, but basically he, he knew him some Harry Price. But nevertheless, Harry Price arrived in July 1935 with Richard Lambert, a personal friend who also had a fascination in the paranormal. For quite a long while, Jeff refused to make himself known, which started to become embarrassing for the Irvings, who felt that he was watching and he was there, but stubbornly refusing to show himself in any way because he just didn't like Harry Price for some reason. I, uh, I swear this, uh, this never happens, Mr. Price. <laughs> Um, this is also the first time we see mention of Margaret believing she had some sort of supernatural intuitive powers. She had been told by spiritualist visitors that she was psychic. Her husband agreed that she had some sort of uncanny powers for intuition. And even Dennis himself thought that she had something interesting going on. She seemed kind of witchy. It becomes a possibility that if Jeff really was some kind of spirit, Margaret was the one allowing him to communicate on the earthly plane. Maybe she was a medium and didn't know it. But in any case, the men returned to their lodgings that evening, planning to bring Vari on a motoring tour around the island the next day, Um, just the three of them, in an effort to get her away from her father, who they felt dominated any conversation. They thought she might have been holding back in her discussion of Jeff, and they had quite a string of questions to put to her privately. Unfortunately, upon hearing the plans for the day, James insisted that he would accompany them too, pretty much defeating the purpose of the excursion. Yeah, no, what the thing is, when Jeff comes, we, 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 what, how Vari feels about it is... Uh... Yeah, and there were a couple other times they tried to talk to Vari alone, like uh, a dinner and stuff, but James always elbowed his way in. Overall, Price and Lambert didn't experience anything out of the ordinary during their trip to Darlish Cashin. And in his later writings, 
Price seems to indicate that he had suspicions of fraud. It's really only hinted at, probably because of libel. But, you know, in any case, at this point, four years into the phenomena, Vari was indicating to the men that she was bored with Jeff and would not mind if he went away and never came back again. Well, stop doing it, Vari. Yeah. Um, By this time, Vari was 17 and not only quite isolated in where she lived, but also a bit of an outsider even to her small community. Like the family started out as outsiders because they were seen as other for coming in to the Isle of Man and and farming and stuff from the outside, whereas most people would grow up as farmers in that area. Now they're the weird ghost family. Right. It didn't help that the family was so known for this bizarre story. Uh, And it didn't help that she was a bit of a tomboy who loved messing around with mechanical stuff. And she was tending to the farm's livestock enough that she was called goatee at school because she smelled like goats. So as Joseph wrote, quote, an identification of Vari with Jeff, both shy, both interested in engineering, both rabbit hunters, has led some commentators to regard Jeff as simply an exteriorized version of Vari's inner world. Many of Jeff's irreverent and ribald outbursts may be read as those of a rebellious teenager. So kind of like the swearing and stuff. And she would often be referred to by others as the Dolby spook. Not just Jeff. Like, she would be called that too. Just in terms of her being creepy or they were implying she was Jeff? I think... Probably differing versions, but yeah, pretty much like, oh, creepy Carrie or whatever. <laughs> what do they call uh, Carrie White in, in Carrie? I don't know, but it's like that. Mm-hmm. So strangely, uh, Jeff was the subject of a slander case heard at the High Court of Justice in November 1936. This might make a good mini so I'm not going to go too deep, but basically... Action was brought by Richard Lambert, who was the companion of Harry Price and co-writer of their book about the case, The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, which had just come out. Um, He brought this case against Lieutenant Colonel Sir Cecil Levita. Now, A a name unconnected (laughs) with this story. So far, yeah. So Lambert had apparently become the target of mockery after publishing the book, even though the book was very suspicious about whether this was true at all. He was on the board of the governors of the British Film Institute, which was in its um, inception. And another member of the board was Sir Cecil Levita. Lambert mentioned his investigation and his book to the Levitas, who told William Gladstone Murray, assistant controller of the BBC, that they believed Lambert was mentally unhinged and unfit to serve on the board of governors. He said there was no mongoose. (laughs) Due to, among other things, his belief in a talking mongoose. When Murray told Lambert of this assertion, Lambert issued a writ for defamation. The case, of course, was a riot. Um, There were arguments about what the plural of mongoose would be, um, whether the whole thing was real. When it concluded, comedians and other broadcasters... Mongooses, right? Mongooses. It can't be mongies. I don't know. Um, Comedians and other broadcasters were banned from using the phrase talking mongoose as it was feared it would cause embarrassment for the BBC. For his part, Sir Levita lost the case to Lambert and was ordered to pay the hefty sum of 7,500 pounds, which is well over half a million dollars today. Lambert himself graciously autographed the jury's copies of his book. 
So in February 1937, our friend research officer Nandor Fodor of the International Institute for Psychical Investigation went to stay at Dorlish Cashin for a week to investigate the Jeff phenomena. He also wanted to interview the Irvings, speak to the locals, gather whatever stories and proof he could. Fodor kind of dubbed himself like a paranormal psychoanalyst. So think maybe the job that the dad in Casper has. <laughs> he was like a big Freudian and stuff, but mm. also very into the paranormal. So was he psychoanalyzing ghosts or was he psychoanalyzing people who said I they saw ghosts? Both. I think both. After his visit, he compiled his notes into a 51-page unpublished diary, which features some small changes to Jeff's origin story. Here, James told Fodor that the very first experience was when, quote, we heard a tap, tap, tap at night. I said, we have mice. The tapping came from the wooden ceiling and the slate roof. I opened up the ceiling and searched. We found an Indian ornament. When we dropped it, it produced the same type of sound. So if you recall, Jeff was said to have come from India himself. Um, James also explained when Jeff began to speak. Jeff's first talk was something like, then we heard a bark. I repeated the noises of various animals. Back like a shot came the same sound. I said the name of the animal. He then repeated what I said. This way, he learned to talk. In a few weeks' time, he was talking as fluently as I do. Oh, wait. So in this version now, James has taught the mongoose how to speak. Yeah, there are differing versions of like... They're, they always basically said that they either taught him or encouraged him to speak by speaking to them and having him repeat back, which is kind of what you do with babies. So I says to myself, well, Jim, you're a pretty good talker. And James knew a lot of little bits of language because he had dealt with a lot of different kinds of people as a um, salesman. So he would say these to Jeff. Jeff would repeat them. He loved the languages. Um, Why did he teach him curse words? Well, he, he heard them, presumably, and he would repeat them. There was incessant questioning and a prodigious thirst for knowledge. One more question, Jim, the voice used to plead. Then I will let you go to sleep. Jeff apparently later told James, For years I could understand all that was said. I tried to talk but couldn't until you taught me. Fodor stayed with the Irvings for a full week investigating Jeff's claims, such as the fact that he said he visited an Isle of Man mansion named Balamore, where he shared such details as the owner having a Pekingese and a Spaniel, um, a fireplace in the hall ornamented with lions, popular trees, and other observations. Wait, this is Balmoral. It's in Scotland. <laughs> the queen just died there. No, Balamore. Um, many of these things were correct. Even the the woman of the house, um, she was like, we don't have a fireplace with a bunch of lions. And then they looked closer, and it turns out that the lions were carved into the fireplace she just never really noticed them because they were like really fine patterns so jeff jeff picked it out he knew and in a strange coincidence the this woman who owned the house revealed that she had kept a tame mongoose as a pet when she was a child in malaysia in malaysia you say yeah i assume if she's living in britain her dad was probably some sort of officer Another objective of Fodor's was to interview as many witnesses to the Jeff phenomena as possible, like James's close friend Charles Morrison, who had heard Jeff's voice on several occasions. A 16-year-old girl named Doris Cashin said that she'd seen Jeff, um, who she described as a light yellow creature with a bushy tail and black tuft at the end. 
John Moore, a postal clerk, said he'd also encountered Jeff during a visit to the home in 1932. Moore said that the voice was heard shouting, Put the bloody gramophone on! When Moore uh, whispered something to another man with him who was at the house, Jeff apparently heard this whisper and shouted back to him exactly what he'd said. That was kind of a classic Jeff move. Classic Jeff. He had like extraordinary hearing. Fodor himself had failed to hear nor see Jeff by the end of his week at Darlish Cashin. However, in a letter to Harry Price's secretary, Fodor concluded that, I've had a fine time, but Jeff is not at home. Whether it was he who threw stones at me one night, I can't tell, but it seems as if he did not approve of me, and I experienced so far nothing paranormal except perhaps two violent bangings of a door without any apparent reason. However, my time is well spent. There is no doubt that there is great mystery here. Fodor felt that the Jeff phenomena was not a hoax thanks to the witness testimony, but he was a little disappointed that he hadn't had any real experiences. In fact, he even wrote a letter to Jeff, addressed to James, who was instructed to pass it on, expressing those very feelings. Please tell me we have a copy. We do. Dear Jeff, I'm very disappointed that you did not speak to me during the whole week which I spent there. I came from a long way and took a lot of trouble in collecting all your clever sayings, and I shall lecture about you at my institute where people are extremely interested in your doings. I hope that you would be kind and generous. I believe you to be a very good and very generous mongoose. I brought you chocolates and biscuits, and I would have been happy if you had done something for me. I am going away deeply disappointed. I am afraid Jim and Maggie will be rude to you when you turn up. Nor will Vari think very kindly of your deserting them. Will you send me a message, or will you write a letter to me? I should be very pleased if you gave a definite promise that you would speak to me. I would come again in the summer. Congratulations on Balamore. You scored there, Jeff. With best wishes, your friend. Uh, Boy, he's really turning up the emotional manipulation on Jeff there. Mm -hmm. And Fodor, kind of by the end of his... Oh, by the way, I don't think this guy should be on the board for the BBC. No, this is a different guy. No, I know. But yeah. This guy believes in talking mongooses. <laughs> well, he eventually concluded, and I'm unclear on whether this is like in later writings or whatever, but he didn't believe deliberate deception had occurred. Um, eventually, because of his kind of interest in psychology, he molded a complex psychological theory to explain Jeff based on a split off part of Jim or James Irving's personality. So he kind of suspected that it was sort of like a not a maybe like a a multiple personality thing an expression of his sort of squandered hopes and dreams after you know his career failed but jim and not the daughter yeah yeah he thought it was he thought it was james in 1938 james irving traveled to england to give a lecture about the experiences at dorlish cashin including some photos that vari had supposedly taken of jeff with a camera given to her by price and lambert you could see the pictures online they're very i mean they're from the 30s they're very old and black and white and there's kind of like oh there's a lump on the fence sure is that a weasel you know By this point, press interest in the story had diminished, and so James likely saw this as a final major opportunity to present the Irving side of the story. 
as he was still stung by the mocking treatment of the events given by Price and, and Lambert in their book, The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, he did not allow press into the lecture. It was just a private event. From 1939 on, Jeff apparently didn't show up very often anymore. Vari was now in her early 20s, and the Second World War was beginning. And the news reporters weren't there. Eh, yeah. Perhaps the Irvings, or Jeff himself, had more important things on their minds. Vari herself joined an engineering firm to work with aviation machinery during this early war period, which is very impressive for and, a young woman. And exactly the kind of thing Jeff would have been interested in. Yeah. A local wrote to researcher Bill Cottle with their theory that 1942 was the last time Jeff was spotted. Quote, The incident all went quiet when engineers came over in 1942 to build a radio location station on our fields. The buildings covered with earth are still there. Maybe Jeff has taken up residence in one of them. James Irving's health began to fail in 1943 and 44, until in 1945 he was left completely bedridden with anemia and dementia. He died of aug in August of that year. According to both Margaret and the eldest Irving daughter, Elsie, at the moment of James's death, they were both sitting before the fireplace and on the mantelpiece was a branch that they used to sweep the fireplace, when lo and behold, this very brush began to move backwards and forwards, which amazed them. It stopped just as Irving died. They afterwards tried to discover how it happened, but could not find anything. Darlish Cashin was put up for auction in November 1945. The place was listed well below market, market average, likely because of the Jeff-related legends surrounding the place. So again, they're kind of losing money on this situation rather than having any financial gain from the story. But this would be a major feature for you as a buyer, wouldn't it? Yeah, but not, a, not the people of the post-war uh, Isle of Man. It was purchased by Robert Cubbin, who put it back on the market merely months later without any explanation. It was then occupied by ex-Army Lieutenant Leslie Graham, who assuredly did not believe in no ghosts or talking mongooses. Mongoose? Mongai? Mongoose. I bet it's mongoose. Just leave Talking Just leave mongoose. Under Graham's ownership, Darlish Cashin became front page news once more. Under the headline, Talking Mongoose Killed, Jeff, famous Dolby Spook, is snared, went out without a word of protest. What? Oh, because they <laughs> caught a weasel in a net. Well, apparently, Graham snared a strange looking animal on the property that appeared remarkably like the descriptions given of Jeff. Was it a mongoose? <laughs> An examiner reporter ex inspected the animal's corpse, saying the animal is of the weasel variety, but larger and evidently of considerable age. It is three feet long with black and yellow mottled fur and weighs five pounds, one ounce. Mr. Graham says it, uh, it is of a type of animal which did not move about much and has probably been about the place for many years. He is convinced it is the subject which was accredited with extraordinary ability and attracted the attentions of writers and scientists. Whew. So all that talk about weasels not being in the area. Well, they're not native to the area. They don't, it, it's just, it's like a weasel-ish, but they don't, they don't have like a specific yeah, but it was diagnosis. Yeah, but it was a big weasel, the color of Jeff. I, maybe. Otherwise, Graham had never experienced anything strange in the home aside from squeaks and movement behind the paneling of the walls, which he attributed to rats. 
In a letter to Harry Price, Graham wrote that he felt Vari had invented Jeff as a means to stave off loneliness, as an imaginary friend of sorts, and then evolved it as a prank on her parents. He also repeated an accusation that he heard from some locals uh, that the events were sourced in both Margaret and Vari, working together to attempt to get James to move out of the farm and back to England. Basically, like, faking a haunting to, to scare him back home. Graham felt that either way, once the story progressed past the immediate family to the surrounding towns and then greater England itself, it would have been too embarrassing to admit it had all been a prank, and so the Irvings, in whichever combination knew the truth, leaned into it. In this version of the story, he's like Jeffrey Jones and Beetlejuice. He just wanted to get out to some peace yeah. and quiet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, eventually, Graham sold the farm once more, and Margaret, Margaret Irving would pass away in March 1960. Some families who lived at Darlish Cashin since the Jeff days have reported some small, strange phenomena, like noises and the like in the home, and one child supposedly claimed that they had spoken to Jeff. However, the farmhouse itself was demolished in 1971 for reasons unknown, and so perhaps Jeff was forced to move on for good but he's since appeared in songs, comic books, and likely even inspired aspects of the H.P. Lovecraft story Dreams in the Witch House, which was written in January and February 1932. Oh, because of the little rat-faced man. Yeah, so it's written when the Jeff story is first hitting the press with abandon. And in the story, a former occupant of an old house, apparently a witch, had a familiar named Brown Jenkin. This character is said to be no larger than a good-sized rat, sharp-toothed, evilly human bearded face with paws like tiny human hands. Its voice was a kind of loathsome titter, and it could speak all languages. So it sounds a lot like Jeff. Yeah. So much like the Mercy Brown vampire case probably inspired Bram Stoker because he was visiting the country when that was hitting the press, this probably inspired H.P. Lovecraft because he was writing the story at the exact same time. Yeah, um, there's a Dreams in the Witch House. There's a terrible Dreams of the Witch House adaptation in that um, new Guillermo del Toro show. Yeah, didn't love it. it a lot of that show's great. Mm. I, I wish I liked it more. What I really liked was Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which I think he produced. Yeah, I did. And I only saw this Halloween season. That I really enjoyed. I watched that too. Did we watch that together? Did we separately watch that this Halloween season? I think we separately did. That's hilarious. <laughs> And so what happened to Vari after all of this? Well, no matter where she moved, the notoriety of the Jeff case was to follow. And I'm sure it didn't help that she had such an uncommon name. Uh, people would recognize it, I'm sure. She moved to Cheltenham, or Cheltenham on the mainland in 1958 to be near her sister Elsie, living alone, as far as it's known, until her death in 2005. After her father's death, she only spoke once of what happened at Darlish Cashin, but refused otherwise even to reporters and documentarians attempting to contact her. To one filmmaker in 1996, she wrote, Very sorry. Under no circumstances would I consider meeting you to discuss what happened at Cashin's Gap in the 1930s. I left the Isle of Man in 1958 to come here to work, hoping that I would leave all that behind me. I dread to think how... 
people I live by, also other people where I worked, would think. I am now 78 years of age, could not face up to anything like that. People would think I was some sort of weirdo. But the one outlier was a July 1970 issue of Fate magazine. Quote, What happened to Jeff? Vari says she does not know. The last she remembers his being around the farm was in 1938 or 39. He seemed to go away for longer and longer periods of time, and then he just never showed up again. He had made no statements about leaving. There had been no goodbyes. He simply was gone. No, Jeff did not leave the island, with the Irvings at any rate. Vari is certain, however, that the beast Graham clubbed to death was not Jeff. In the animal's gradual leave-taking, Fodor may have may well have found support for his theory about Irving and Jeff. Basically, he's saying as uh, James was dying, um, Jeff appeared less and less, which is true. So he kind of said, well, maybe Fodor was right. Maybe it was a version of James. Does he mean spiritually or does he mean the way Fodor did, which seemed to be split personality? I don't know. I don't know. Vari was quoted as saying, Jeff was very detrimental to my life. We were snubbed. The other children used to call me the spook. I had to leave the Isle of Man and hope that no, that no one where I work ever knows the story. Jeff has even kept me from getting married. How could I ever tell a man's family about what happened? And the reporter asks some more interesting questions. Was Jeff a mongoose? I don't know. I know he was a small animal about nine inches to a foot long. I know he talked to us from the wainscoting. His voice was very high-pitched. He swore a lot. The speech was not parrot-like? Oh, no. At first he talked to me more than anyone. We carried on regular conversations. After thirty years, you still insist this was not a hoax. It was not a hoax, and I wish it had never happened. If my mother and I had our way, we'd have never told anyone about it. But father was sort of wrapped up in it. It was such a wonderful phenomenon that he just had to tell people about. The author concludes with his belief in the veracity of Vari's story, especially the fact that despite her meager financial situation, she consistently, over years and years, refused high-paying offers to speak to British newspapers about the events. And before we discuss what we really think happened at Darlish Cashin, I'll end with a quote from Christopher Joseph. Jeff occupies a liminal space between fraud, psychological disturbance or pathology, whether on an individual or family level, and the supernatural. Jeff is the shaded area in the center of the Venn diagram consisting of all these possibilities. The elusive Jeff is only to be found in the gaps. He lurks, just out of view, behind the hedges in the fields. He himself is the confluence, the meeting point of traditional rural Manx folklore and technological modernity. No one single explanation, hoax, talking animal, psychiatric case, elemental, folkloric, bearing, parapsychological, suffices to account for all the known facts. Perhaps this is why the Jeff story is such a favorite among devotees of the paranormal. So what was Jeff? Was it just a hoax, a joke, or tall tale that got out of hand, a poltergeist created by a pubescent teenage daughter? A tulpa, um, which we kind of investigated in our Slender Man series, created by the whole family, uh, a cryptid of sorts, or a real talking animal, an Indian spirit. What do you think, Sean? What was Jeff? Jeff. My name is Jeff. I think that 
summation you just read was a really really good one because it's a, it's a, this book uh jeff exclamation point it's really good coming um, soon to broadway i definitely recommend it it's a very interesting in-depth review of a very specific story alan cumming is going to essay the role of jim on stage isn't he? <laughs> uh, i would say jeff probably <laughs> <laughs> um because it does. It kinda... I feel like Jim is more of a Michael Shannon. Just mm. like, is he crazy or what's happening here? Yeah, fair enough. Fair mm-hmm. enough. I could see it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get this going. Oh, yeah. It does kind of exist in those liminal spaces because, I don't know. First of all, it is similar to some other stories we've talked about. Especially right? the poltergeist ones. Those are the ones I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And those stories also involved young girls. And the mongoose would occasionally ask people to give her presents so it also reminds me a little of the Flatwoods monster, like that whole incident involving the kids. Mm-hmm. And then they did some press, but then they didn't really speak about it again for decades afterwards. And they were like, yeah, we were called freaks and everything. Like we didn't want to be associated with this. Why would we make this up? It was horrible for our lives. Right. But the fact that she would, um, a, it sounds like she, her life was terrible at school and stuff anyway, cause she smelled like goats. Um, <laughs> but she would, uh, it didn't help. The idea of throwing pebbles at your mom's back and swearing at your dad and calling him, you know, by his first name. Um, If she can get away with all that and she's a bored rural teenager who doesn't want to be a rural teenager in the 30s, um, I could see that. Uh, I think... But she would have to be a brilliant ventriloquist. Yeah. Because there were times when people were looking right at her. Right, but we know that Marcia was in the Bridgeport Poltergeist case. Because, I mean, everyone seems to agree that at least the cat voice in, in that case was her. So when when the Irvings stated that they saw this stuff, do you think everyone was in on it? Or it was just Wari? I, I mean, they, they said they saw this creature a bunch of times. I think there could have been some amount of, like, Santa Clausing from the parents. Oh, I don't know. And, like, you know, kind of a, a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't think they would have gone to the to talk to the press if that was the case. But I also think each of them could have had their own reasons for playing into it, whether consciously or unconsciously. Now, people thought that it might have been sort of a, a psychological hysteria almost, shared like a folia de, but folia trois. Sure. I don't buy... Uh, uh, yeah, at one point, one of the researchers was saying um, the little girl was doing it ventriloquist style, but didn't know she was doing it i don't buy i don't buy that for a second i don't buy that more than ghosts um but i do buy the little girl was doing it and then you've got a folia de with the parents gassing each other up so you think the parents genuinely believed that this was happening um it's possible but i also think it's possible they believed it like well you don't want to believe your daughter is just hoaxing this thing and you haven't seen proof that that's the case um, and it is your home, so it's a little concerning there's something inside it. So, you, yeah, they, they believed it because they, they weren't given a reason not to. Um, it also strikes me, I mean, maybe Jim faked some of these things and Vari faked some of these things. And mm. either each of them believed the other, one, the other one's uh, phenomena were genuine. Or, or they were working together on it. Or they were both just doing it, and the mother was the only one in the house who believed. Yeah, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. There's a lot of interesting 
relationship dynamic stuff going on just on top of all of this weirdness. Yeah, I, I think I am relatively sure from what you've told me that some of these voices were the daughter talking into her hand. Because mm-hmm. one of the guys even saw her covering her mouth with her hand while mm-hmm. Jeff was talking. That t- Like that seems like, you know. Yeah, but what about the stuff of like Jeff knowing what they talked about by the water and... Th- those are the freakiest things. That and the castle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, I mean, Christopher Joseph kind of puts it really well. Like there's no one explanation that, at least with the information that we have, explains away all of what happened. Right. You could explain most of it, but there are still some outlying things where unless there's stuff that we don't know, which I'm sure there is, right. there's we're nothing, just not going to know. There's nothing that really fits tight. The daughter or the mother could have tailed them, you know, when they yeah. when they went on that uh, beer run. <laughs> but I don't find that super believable. Yeah. But the researcher said the dad didn't have time to really talk to the mom and go like, hey, here's what we talked about. I had a beer. Yeah. Um, until you talked about him knowing her knowing specifics of their conversation, I was like, well, yeah, she could have guessed her dad had a beer for lunch because her dad always had a beer for lunch. Yeah, but it's like seeing you pick a daisy or whatever. It gets very specific. I don't know. I I think with the information we have, I think it's a combination of stuff. Um, The castle? I mean, there, there might be a possibility of like the dad trying to get this whole thing going. I don't know why you'd come up with this particular weird story and not just a ghost, right? This but, this family had looked at houses in the area to buy shortly before. I don't think they moved in with a plan because this is a while after they moved in. No, I know. But what if they happened to have visited that house? Oh, the Balmore? I mean, it was like a mansion, so I don't think they would have moved there. But they could have visited. Um, they said that they hadn't, but... Um, you know, there could be a possibility that the dad knew that she was very good at this ventriloquism stuff, and he made her do this, and that's why she doesn't like talking about it, because it's like a traumatic memory of like him forcing her to perform. Yeah, I don't know... If I, I agree with you, though, that I don't know that I see his motivation. Yeah, I mean, they, they really didn't profit financially and in fact lost money on selling the place so i don't know right but teenagers do things sometimes not because it will help anyone true that true that my so, name's jeff and in this life he is called jean jenge uh no it's um jacks jesh jenk it it sounds like jesh so but but one thing i know about i love jeff Jeff's great. Jeff's uh, a menace, but he's great. He um, he could be a ferret, right? I think that's a possibility. Based on that description? Yeah. Like the, the white yellow fur, the black tufted tail. Yeah. I mean, any, anything weaselly. They're all part of the same family. Yeah. Um, obviously, we don't have to have an explanation for seeing the, the weasel. It's just a weasel. I guess. Or astute. I'm Edward October. Ask any bold individualist and they'll tell you. All you need for a perfect eggnog is to combine egg yolks, beaten until creamy, egg whites, beaten until fluffy, heavy cream, a generous portion of fresh ground nutmeg, and an even more generous portion of liquor. Most people use dark rum. I prefer bourbon. 
The final two ingredients are essential. A cozy seat by the fire to sip it, and a ghost story, told as only October Pod can tell it. This year, October Pod's gift to you is a Christmas ghost story that can easily be called a classic of the medium. It drops on December 25th, Christmas Day. Find it on our YouTube channel, October Pod Home Video, or on October Pod AM, wherever you get podcasts. You can find all of our links at OctoberPodVHS.com. Listen by the fire, and we guarantee it will be the crowning pleasure of your busy holiday season. After all, eggnog without a belt of good hooch is hardly eggnog, and Christmas without an OctoberPod ghost story is hardly Christmas. OctoberPod, Yuletide Horror for Bold Individualists. news this week, friends. Um, I guess things are kind of quiet now that it's the end of the year, you know. Uh, people are, are getting out their fat pants for the holiday season, and they're not worrying too much about things. Um, you know, people have seen ghosts, people have seen cryptids, but it's it's nothing super, super interesting. There was an attempted or a plotted coup to overthrow the German government, by what sort of lizard people, big world. Uh, yeah, by a man named Heinrich the Thirteenth. Um, he was from an old aristocratic family, and he, he wanted to be placed as like king of Germany or something. Uh, they always do. Um, so yeah, so like that's a thing, right? But uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah, not much going on. And um, it's not strictly paranormal. Like these days, that's that seems seems pretty pretty just oh that's more of a lizard people that's a conspiracy you know because it was a little conspiracy and they've all been arrested but other than that not much going on so um you know enjoy the quiet i say enjoy the quiet and enjoy the holidays and look forward to upcoming minisodes on patreon on uh both the jeff the talking mongoose libel lawsuit (laughs) if there's enough there there is a whole article on medium for it so i'm gonna look but for a mini you can do a mini (laughs) Uh, and certainly the uh, bright and cheery minisode coming on human retainer sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But till then, that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. And if you uh, have us on your Spotify wrapped as one of your top podcasts, please share that with us on Instagram or any of the other socials. And we will repost because that's very exciting and strange to us and we love it. Well, thank you so much to those who already have. That is truly uh, the reason for the season. You've ruined you've you've ruined Christmas because there's nothing that we're gonna <laughs> unwrap that's gonna be better than that. That was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, special thanks to all all our beloved top tier patrons who also make us so happy. Absolutely, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, and Haley. See you guys next Thursday. We love you very much. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. I'm Jeff. 
My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.